0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the One Health Gov. And today we have a very special guest with us. My, uh, my amazing uh, co-supervisor, Dr. Freya Jeffcott. And uh, Freya is uh, a senior research uh, associate at the Center for Study of Existential Risk in the University of Cambridge. And, and, and uh, the best human being. And yeah, and she's in Nepal at the moment and like just helping out with my research and guiding me all the way. And she has been like s- such a huge, huge help. And again, like Freya, this is like a like official welcome to Nepal again. And thank you for being here and helping me with my work. And also thank you for agreeing to the podcast, the video podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it is very much my pleasure, or at least the helping you with your work, Vedas. No, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> podcast remains to be seen. Oh, Okay. More optimistic. So we can do that. You're is <laughs> <laughs> okay. Vaccine, the logaiyo. Vaccine, go cold chain, maintain, go no
0: Human life is precious. Like, ishanga compare on me What's going to be our legacy today? And our legacy. And yeah, so uh, Freya is uh, an uh, anthropologist and an epidemiologist, and so um. Uh, so Freya, just for the viewers, can you just briefly explain uh, what is anthropology and uh, epidemiology? And you're also, an, it's also an uh, ethnographer, right? So, yeah. so just explain the terms and what does it mean and how does it um, tie up with the public health uh, whole scenario? So, Yeah,
1: Yeah, certainly. So epidemiology is the study of patterns of disease at a population level. So it's sort of, whereas a doctor maybe deals with people or a vet might deal with animals sort of in a one-on-one clinical setting, an epidemiologist is more concerned with how a disease or a burden of disease is sort of represented across the whole population and sort of trying to intervene at that level. Uh, as an anthropologist, I'm well, as a medical anthropologist in particular, I'm really interested in how the sort of beliefs and practices of people, especially public health professionals, uh, determine, you know, uh, essentially what they do and how, say, the beliefs and practices of Public health professionals might change the patterns of disease at the population level, whereas some medical anthropologists are more concerned with, say, how people's beliefs and practices about disease uh, change their vulnerability to disease. I'm more interested in people that manage the disease. Can you give
0: like some examples of where uh, where social sciences would be used to 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 maybe um, explore the situation of disease or to to um, yeah, look, the, the patterns of disease? Because uh, in Nepal, like. With my experience, right, it's mostly just the uh, health professionals or uh, veterinary professionals, you know, like just working towards the disease and the 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 whole uh, social science uh, sector or component seems to be lacking. So um, just yeah,
1: like so they can sort of manifest in all kinds of ways. So what we've been talking a lot whilst about a lot whilst I've been here in Nepal with you is about treatment seeking behaviors, how. <coughs> what people do or where they go for help, um, obviously this has, when they're sick, has like, huge implications for the surveillance data that's generated, uh, whether they can access care or not, health outcomes and such. But studying treatment-seeking behaviours, that is, what people decide to do when they're sick or what they decide to do for, say, their sick child, that's more a, a sort of area that it's easier for an anthropologist to study than, say, a doctor or a vet. So. Yeah, Uh, that's really when they can kind of come to the fore. But, I mean, anthropologists, they study all kinds of things and can contribute to health in all kinds of ways, not just about treatment-seeking behaviours, but also sort of critiques of larger approaches to healthcare delivery, about ways to make it more fair, more accessible, um, and sort of think about the larger sort of social structures that are determining the way um, um, we decide who's sick and who's well.
0: uh, Okay, so it's... it's Kind of um, understanding uh, what the communities do, like the people's behaviors and uh, how culture or culture might play like play a role. So some some examples such as those. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, but it can also be sort of critiques of the larger system. So we can look at these kind of uh, people's behaviors on a sort of one to one sort of level. But then there's an absolutely brilliant sort of <coughs> social scientist uh, called Doreen Brahm, who's at the oh. University of Cambridge with us. And she uses the social sciences to explore the risk of zoonotic spillover in populations that have been displaced by say climate change, hmm. so if you have uh, i don 't know say say in Pakistan in the Sindh province and they've had sort of super floods and or like coastal erosion, and then people with their animals they have to shift great distances and all the rest, and we want to understand how the risk of a zoonotic spillover, so a pathogen jumping from their animals to them in these really turbulent times, sort of changes, then actually the person, the kind of skill set that's most useful for understanding how people's relations with animals change in this really sort of detailed, complex environment are, again, social scientists. So I guess the last bit is ethnography and what that is. So ethnography is where you try and create a really sort of detailed account of what's going on in the ground that takes into account all the sort of like complexities of what might be going on. So if, say, we were doing um, an ethnographic study of people working in Teiko Infectious Diseases Hospital on the sort of rabies unit, then we would try and like add in all the possible sort of factors informing what's going on there. The sort of complexities of the interpersonal dynamics of the doctors. We might look at the resource limitations. We might look at the treatment-seeking behaviours of the people coming forward. And we just, we really allow for all that really important complexity that you sometimes don't get with sort of more reductionist sort of scientific studies where you're just trying to create some generalizable knowledge. We're really sort of situation-specific because that stuff's important. Um so yeah that's really what it brings to the table which is important we need to occasionally look at the what's happening in the real world and all of its sort of messiness. Ah,
0: okay so it's it's in a way it's just um uh being in the scene and just trying to look at all the different uh factors that are that, that might be influencing like a, like our research question right yeah.
1: yeah it's it's not being scared of like embracing actually what's going on and how like truly messy it is but also like really paying attention to what the implications of things are like what the consequences are mm. sometimes when we just do purely scientific work we take kind a small snapshot and only really consider one or two or three variables whereas ethnography really lets you sort of go into like absolutely everything that's going on and also take into account the kind of perspectives of the people experiencing it too which is quite important from a sort of advocacy perspective as well
0: Uh, i see and and uh one thing you said uh uh, interpersonal personal relationship of the doctors yeah so can you briefly explain just give an example like yeah sure
1: like um so there's there's some really interesting outbreak responses I've worked on and they've never actually made it into the sort of the scientific literature and it's because there's been breakdowns of relations between different groups that were working on the outbreak response and they keep sort of vetoing the publication or I've seen similarly like a breakdown of diagnostic testing because of tensions between a research institute and another Now, these are things that are of great consequence to whether we effectively manage an outbreak or not. But it's stuff that doesn't get into the literature through sort of just scientific alone papers. But they're still really important considerations when trying to improve, you know, public health delivery.
0: Right now, the concept of One Health or the One Health approach, right, it's... it's 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 like everywhere. So people like the the claims are that so this is if it's a zoonotic disease or even some other, you know, like so we need to have interdisciplinary uh, collaborations to have like an, an effective control method. So right. So um, so a lot of the viewers, a lot of them who are watching are from Nepal. But um, so. What happens globally? Can you just uh, uh, share your experience regarding how the the, the concept is being uh, approached um, across the globe? Yeah.
1: So I feel like actually there's quite a sort of standard mod- model of One Health that's being ex- like um, exported globally. So we're seeing sort of One Health initiatives around the world. The WHO and OIE and such are really pushing sort of One Health initiatives, especially around zoonoses uh unfortunately uh, this kind of model of one health that is being promoted i mean it's got a few sort of uh, shortcomings one is the fact that as much as we say it's sort of meant to be sort of environmental scientists ecologists uh, vets and doctors a lot of the time the kind of representation of the doctors is not so much the ecologists seem to be missing altogether and it seems to be the vets having to work for human health rather than also these concerns of environmental health and Um, animal health too and also I think sort of embedded in that is maybe a bit of a, a sort of again sort of reductionist western model of relations with animals between people that doesn't actually map very well onto a lot of different settings where the sort of relationship between the environment humans and animals is actually maybe more complicated or it's more evenly balanced with this model of One Health, we really still prioritise human health within it, even if we say it's meant to be mm-hmm. these three aspects. And I think that's one <coughs> of its great shortcomings.
0: Uh, yeah, no, we we did see that even in Nepal. I mean, so everyone's advocating, like the, the, the advocacy is there for the uh, approach and people, um, like there are conference meetings and everyone agrees. But when it comes to practical implementation or joining hands, so it's, it's usually like, yeah, like uh, like to two, two me, like the vets are the ones who are doing it and then the human health, but all the rest, I don't see the ecologists, environmental scientists, you know, wildlife experts. So th- th- this is missing, right? So, so that it's, yeah, that the problem is still in Nepal. And, uh, and how, how do you see, like, do, do, do you think that this situation might change or by the things that, they're, that's how it's going, it like, what's the fate?
1: It's really hard to tell. I'm hoping that maybe over the coming decades we really open up to social scientists again too and sort of demographers and, you know, it just, that we sort of expand more. And then I think once you bring the social sciences in, you'll get more of these critiques about, you know, about the sort of blind spots of the current system where it's vets working for human health, essentially. Um, And maybe... Maybe there's a fix in that. I'm not sure. I mean, One Health, even just bringing together vets and the human health system obviously has benefits. I just think it could be more fully realized if it brought in social scientists and considered other perspectives as well, like different cultures, different countries and different relations with animals and the planet.
0: So Freya, can you uh, briefly explain the history of One Health?
1: Well, I'd say the sort of the basic concept of, you know, human, animal and environmental health is probably ancient. I'm sure the ancient Greeks even have like lots to say about it. This kind of modern iteration has sort of One Health as this uh, sort of unified model of how we can address um, health. That's really sort of emerged over the last like 20ish years, I guess. I think that it probably has some of its roots in something called the emerging infections worldview, which came about at the end of the 80s. So essentially what had happened was we had suddenly seen HIV, AIDS sort of spread globally with seemingly very little warning and it sort of made especially a lot of people in public health quite nervous about this idea of infections we hadn't seen before suddenly spreading. I mean it was on the back of some of like the discovery of Ebola in the sort of late 70s some cholera outbreaks, yellow fever it was sort of yeah a a bit of a nerve-wracking time for them and so they convened these like great meetings in the U.S. to try and you know uh, essentially this is a new category of public health concern a significant one so it was actually I think in like the very early 90s that even the phrase like emerging infectious diseases is sort of public health category uh, was coined, so really quite recently. And initially, uh, Stephen Morse, who was one of the people on this sort of uh, American group of scientists flagging this problem, he was like, "Okay, well, clearly this sudden increase in infections we haven't seen before or ones that we thought we'd sort of banished to the past, like spreading globally, well, this looks to be the sum of all these features of modernity, sort of international travel, um, high density living arrangements in sort of cities, high density farming, deforestation, you know, all of these uh, drivers of emergence. And so to address this, we're really going to need to have, you know, the sort of political scientists, demographers, environmentalists. And so initially, this whole movement about trying to tackle diseases was really inclusive and multidisciplinary. But then in the sort of years that followed, because it was kind of being chaired by microbiologists and they say um, to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. They really made this explicit choice to move towards more sort of microbiological sort of technological approaches rather than this more inclusive sort of social environmental one. And I think we kind of saw that then in how the One Health movement manifested, especially the absence of sort of these social scientists in them too. And I think it also with them we saw that sort of packaging of a very sort of American or Western view of the problem and its possible solutions.
0: So the need for social sciences in in in, in the public health sector, like it's, it's quite important, right? So I, I'm, I've experienced that and like even my work with rabies, it's, Going in, uh, kind of going the ethnography direction, right? So, um, but um, can you give some examples, like uh, some, some, some the outbreaks or some um, uh, uh, like uh, disease investigations where, like, you know, the use of social scientists or um, these approaches maybe like resulted in a more effective kind of. Uh, you know, outcome
1: or... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, social sciences is huge. It's essentially saying, could you give yeah. an example where a virologist has helped with a public health problem and there's all these different yeah, ways they true. could have done it. Um, we could even go back to some really, really old school sort of... Because I, when I'm not being an anthropologist, I'm an outbreak responder myself, a, a ah, field epidemiologist. Okay. So we could go back to like one of the really old examples of field epidemiology. So in the sort of 1950s, do you know about... Kuru? It's a kind of prion disease? No. Okay, well, uh, it's a wonderful story involving cannibals and everything. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I think Papua New Guinea, about the 1950s, lots of Australian sort of colonial agents running around and all the rest. And uh, it began to be noticed that within the Fourier tribe, uh, women in particular, but also children, were developing this sort of fatal neurological condition where they'd start sort of... uh, you know, getting tremors and all the rest, and it would progress to death. And they really had no idea what was going on there. And there were all kinds of these sorts of questionable theories being put forward by various epidemiologists and virologists and the like, and even sort of female hysteria, despite, like, some poor doctor back in Australia had to flag the fact that hysteria probably couldn't cause holes in the brains, which they were seeing in the autopsies, so maybe Mm. put that one to rest. But nothing seemed to, like, track quite well. So then they came out with this idea that it was a genetic disorder was causing this. But there were some anthropologists in the area who'd been sort of studying the tribe, and they're like, no, 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 it seems to be quite recent, so probably not genetic. Also, the people who were developing it, they're not blood relations to the tribe. They've been brought in from this other community. And so eventually it was actually through the anthropologists who have this really sort of detailed knowledge of the area and the population that they were able to work out that it was a practice that had recently been imported of women eating the brains of their dead husbands cool. in particular, or cool. dead husbands, little partner, spouse, or whatever. Um, and that, that was div- uh, causing prion disease in humans because you ingest this like misfolded protein, and when you do it actually causes the proteins in your brain to sort of misfold, and it's fatal. But they wouldn't have been able to get there without this sort of like reality check of people doing these more long-term concerned interesting ones. Actually, I've just thought of a much better example, a contemporary one I was just reading this morning. Uh, during the 2014 Ebola outbreak, where I was there as a field op- epidemiologist as well, uh, there was the all of these claims that this area where the outbreak appeared to have begun, I think it's called Meladu in Guinea, uh, that it was a site of sort of deforestation which, you know, we associate with viral emergence because there's sort of disruptions to the normal sort of animal distribution and all of these other sort of drivers. And so they're like, oh, it's a site of deforestation. And some anthropologists familiar with these communities were like, actually, no, it's more forested now than it was, say, 40 years ago. You know, you're just projecting, you're guessing, Mm -hmm. despite being scientists at this important factor. And these anthropologists also said, the local community, they don't think the bats were involved in this. They sort of reject your claim. They're saying that it looks to maybe have something to do with a woman who visited the village at that time who was quite sick. She'd come to see a traditional healer. But, you know, the scientists at the time, that sort of epistemic community, uh, dismissed these kinds of accounts. Anyway, I mean, last year we saw an outbreak in Guinea again, and it was sexual transmission from a survivor of the 2014 Ebola outbreak. Okay. And so in sort of revisiting these narratives that were dismissed by the scientists but really engaged with the anthropologists, we find that this woman that supposedly came to this town, as uh, she had a partner in the DRC, a soldier, where we do know that we do have actually plenty of Ebola outbreaks and all the rest, we know that sexual transmission can seed outbreaks now, which we didn't at the time, making that local theory seem a lot more plausible. And we can also see how tenuous so much of the scientific work trying to prove that it had come from a bat because so many bats and other animals were surveyed, and they never found the sort of live virus in it. But they were very sort of you know, intent and in following in that. So I think a lot of the time, anthropologists in the context of outbreaks and such can really provide that kind of more nuanced, detailed grounded understanding that's really important i mean other people will tell you oh anthropologists are great for sort of understanding unsafe burial practices and all the rest of that stuff but sometimes i worry that that's just about sort of othering or making the people who are suffering seem more exotic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and actually i think a lot of what anthropologists can bring to the table is critiquing the beliefs and practices of the public health people not the afflicted populations or maybe a bit of both you know
0: oh yeah no, um, I I see the the importance of um, having more like uh, social scientists and anthropologists in the public health sector in Nepal because I think we're missing like a, the big picture. You know, like whenever it's it's mostly like the even the policies and the uh, control programs are mostly opinion based and it's it's there's really less scientific backing and also it's it's like you said it's just like one facet. It's just they just look at like a you know one-directional, so when there's other factors at play. So I think having this component uh, to, to tackle the disease and outbreak situation in Nepal would, would, be, would be really like beneficial. Yeah?
1: yeah, you don't want to rely on assumptions to make policy. You don't want to assume that something is working when you don't study <clears throat> the long-term delivery of impact for the community. You don't want to assume that people aren't seeking help, say, for rabies because they don't know about rabies when actually... It yeah. could be something else. You really want to base it in a detail. And also anthropology, it might sound like this ethnography is just hanging around and watching. It's actually a very sort of well-developed and really attention-like detailed-oriented pursuit. It's a discipline in its own right. So it's not something you just want to wing either.
0: The political will, right? Sometimes like uh, what we've seen as well is um, the scientists are like, suggesting one thing. And it's based on facts. It's based on uh, like um, research. But you know, like at the end of the day, the pol- policy makers are um, well, uh, politicians or who have like vested interest in some other things, right? Sometimes it seems as if like they don't see eye to eye, or uh, the the kind of policies that are being made are like, based on someone's um, uh, interests, right? So. How, that that happens in Nepal all the time, you know. It's yeah, like uh, the, the the bureaucrats at the higher level and the, the things happening in the grassroots. That's totally detached. So uh, does that happen like elsewhere? Like yeah, oh yeah, of yeah, course. Just, just please share and give examples. Just like yeah. even
1: as you were speaking, all I had in my head was like all of the like the UK's management of COVID, for instance. So many of the policy choices by the government didn't map on to what the sort of public health experts and the epidemiological consensus was. And so you can't explain why we failed to manage COVID better on that island based on like, we need more epidemiology or we need more virology. I mean, they did their job. What explains the gap between the policy is actually something which you need to engage with, with sort of like political scientists and anthropologists and understanding where this this sort of I mean, yeah, there's really interesting ties between this small number of uh, public health experts that were sort of saying that we should have herd immunity and just let the virus spread and all the rest. And now it turns out they have ties to sort of climate change denial groups and money in the US with like political parties and stuff. And you really need a different sort of set of experts to interrogate that so that collectively we can all work together to deliver yeah better better management of health threats yeah,
0: so you mentioned uh during 2014 you worked uh for the ebola outbreak in the west african uh um region right so um yeah so uh, like how how did you end up like doing that and and also like what was your experience because we're like l- like hearing about that all over the tv and the media and we could just imagine the situation over there right but you're like right there in the field like like trying to contain it. So it just please, like, like share your experience.
1: Um, it's a, How I ended up there is a bit of a weird route. Uh, essentially, I was living and working in Ghana at the time, doing sort of social science and some virological research. And then this big sort of outbreak started in West Africa of Ebola. And it just so happened that the research I was doing at the time was on filoviruses and bats in West Africa, and also fevers of unknown origin in... Sort of people in remote settings and so it was suddenly like hugely relevant in a way it just hadn't been before. So I reached out to Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, to say would you like an anthropologist that is not only good with sort of the science and safety of Ebola type viruses, like viruses, and also really well versed in treatment seeking behaviors for fevers in West Africa, like send me as an anthropologist please I'll help. Um, And they were like, actually, what we need is someone with your background to work as a field epidemiologist. And so I think in my head, I'd envisioned that I would just go there and someone would shove me in an office and I'd do spreadsheets. But I got there and I was the (coughs) manager of epidemiological (coughs) activities for Kailan, which was the hardest hit bit of Sierra Leone, and shared a border with uh, Guinea and Liberia. So a bit of a, a really tricky sort of area. And suddenly, yeah, it was all on. And so... As the manager of Epidemiolo- sorry, as the manager of epidemiological activities for MSF in that area at that time, um, I was really sort of so- supporting the local district disease control officers in uh, tracking cases, working out like the rough numbers, their distribution, effective interventions, why certain areas weren't reporting any cases when they should have, why cases were increasing in different areas. Um, No, it it was quite something. Um, Yeah, it's it's one of those things, though, that at the time you're sort of all consumed with the very immediate things you have to sort of handle. You need to try and break these chains of transmission and curtail them and just do whatever it takes to sort of do that. And now that I've had a few years since um, to reflect on it, the sort of anthropologist, social scientist in me just gets stuck on all the sort of inefficiencies and where we sort of let things down and what we could have done better. Uh, which is maybe the harder bit of being an epi anthropologist is that sort of criticism that comes after. But yeah, uh, you know, like in light of the current COVID outbreak and uh, long COVID, this burden of sequelae amongst survivors. It was only when I developed long COVID after getting COVID that I started to look into this like post viral sequelae. And despite actually having been a manager of epidemiological activities on two different Ebola outbreaks now, and worked for the WHO on a third. I hadn't realised that nearly 90% of the survivors, if not more, have really debilitating sequelae. So as much as we only half died, say, in the West African Ebola outbreak, those that didn't got left in a really poor state. But as a sort of foreign field epidemiologist, as soon as like, it no longer looked to be you know, actively transmitting between people, I just sort of bailed out. And now I realise how that kind of external, short-lived incursions into communities is really not particularly efficient and stop me seeing the larger picture of the burden that needed to be attended to. And mm. so, yeah, you know, it's...
0: So, I mean, like, okay, if if you are given another chance, I mean, if you could go back, so um, how would you have, like, done it differently, or some of the things, you know, like, uh, could have been, like, managed properly? So, you have any of... The...
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I think that the big thing I've taken from my work as a field epidemiologist rather than as an anthropologist is that there's, it's a terrible idea using external sort of elite experts being parachuted in for short visits to places they know little of. Really, it's so much, makes so much more sense in terms of efficiency, but also economically, to make sure that there are just generic health services that are well resourced in every setting. It would not only help with like every other sort of cause of disease in an area to have like well-resourced local district disease control officers, for example. Um, But like when it comes to something like Ebola, you don't even need to know necessarily it's Ebola. You just need to know that there are some people that are very sick that appear to be infectious and need to be isolated with basic PPE and all the rest. And that could just do so much, whereas even the smallest outbreak I've ever sort of tangentially worked on of Ebola has cost over 50 million dollars which would have been enough to like, train and employ two district disease control officers for every part of the DRC for 20 years. And that wouldn't have just stopped Ebola outbreaks. It would have like, helped with so many other things. So I think we have to get out of this sort of reactive approach of being specialised and tech-oriented and just go back to like, investing in good primary healthcare. That was one of the weirdest things about working as an epidemiologist in Sierra Leone, the people who were, like, doing all the like almost all of the day-to-day contact tracing, like finding the people who had been in contact with someone symptomatic and infectious and isolating them, making sure the safe burials were happening, getting infected themselves and their families getting infected and then coming back to work, they were local district disease control officers. I would argue they did the thing that stopped the outbreak, along with the community engagement people. Again, social scientists represent. Um, but... When I got back to the UK, all I heard about was sort of foreign scientists and what they were doing. And then when we heard about people in Sierra Leone, it was either just community members, government officials and not doctors and nurses. You never heard about these district officers who were doing all the work. And so I really think we need to go back to just putting the resources and the people who live and belong and care about the communities.
0: Uh, so you mean... Um um, the communities and uh, the the local resource, they need to be well-trained, right?
1: Yeah, they, uh, well, mostly they just need to, well, <clears throat> certainly they need to be well-trained, but that didn't seem to be the issue. They need to be well-resourced. Oh. I worked on this outbreak that was meant to be a monkey born outbreak of B-virus. It, it wasn't, um, but it was meant to be in sort of Ghana, and so it got all this attention, and, like, the U.S. Navy was putting together these, like, 150,000 US dollar kind of research proposals and all the rest and the local district control officer didn't have the like less than 60 dollars he needed for fuel for his motorbike Mm. to go do contact tracing or to print the questionnaires which is just absolutely ridiculous you shouldn't have like like, I mean that just makes no sense if we're serious about stopping disease emergence because I mean they care and they're accountable to the community for long-term positive outcomes and if you just go for a short time, like, you might be able to stop a discrete outbreak, but even then you might just be able to describe it, get it published in a paper and leave. But say you could do an intervention too, which takes time, you're not going to be, like, a field epidemiologist isn't necessarily going to stick around and then start to address the actual environmental drivers of disease in that area. You know, it won't start to engage with the poor housing or the, you, you know... Um, it's a I think it's a story we tell ourselves about how outbreak responses should work, and we need social scientists to really sort of slap down that picture and bring us back to something more useful
0: mm. And also is there kind of a notion that um, the the um, communities or the local uh, manpower experts so they wouldn't be able to handle like a like a grave situation, like a disease outbreak, and uh, um, we need to send experts from these, like you know, elite like Western countries to help them. There, you know, like yeah. is there kind of that kind of thought process? Oh or? yeah,
1: absolutely. So much of like contemporary global health, in particular, mm-hmm. which is just health that gets done in poorer countries with the some resources of the richer ones, um, it's a, all kinds of like useless colonial logics again. I mean, there is a need for, especially with novel or emerging viruses, to be able to like, source information and input from a variety of experts that might be scattered around the world. But that's to support the local, the sort of state delivery of good health like and disease control. It's not to supplant it or marginalise it, which is how we kind of do it now. We like to pretend that there's a void of talent in these oh. countries that we have to fill. Whereas actually, it's just because we get to tell the stories afterwards that we make it out, it was that way. Where really, there was an uneven distribution of resources in the world that we've been leveraging to sort of stay relevant in global health. Um,
0: yeah. So, yeah, in a way, like, um, you can take the credit, right, for the person who actually, like like you said, parachutes into the region and helps out. So in the late, later part, he, he gets to tell his story as how he was the one yeah. or she was the one or they were the ones, like, who did the all the work, right? And also... So with that approach, what happens once they leave, right? Because unless you train the local manpower, unless you provide resources, like uh, to to contain that for a long time, uh, that's gonna come back, and that's just like a momentarily yeah. that stops, right? No, so, absolutely. That, th- yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's not like you've done the sort of work. So I like I think we have an obsession with specific etiologies these days, like the specific causes of disease. And we love diagnostic tests and all the rest. And we've kind of lost sight of the larger environmental and social drivers of disease that are not so specific. Like, it's not like any of these are operating outside of germ theory. Mm-hmm. Like, good conditions of, like, you know, living standards protect against everything. And yeah, this kind of obsession with specific etiologies and specific expertise and technology, I think it hasn't done us favors, you know.
0: You mean the, the, the really like specialized like uh, techniques and diagnostics, oh, and
1: but just we pretend that like Ebola is such a such a special thing. It's really not. It's a disease of poverty, like almost every other infectious disease. I mean, we just don't want to address the poverty because that would mean long-term meaningful engagement with these settings. We want what seems like an easy fix where we go in. We do our small bit to stop what seems to be a discrete event, but it's not a discrete event. An Ebola outbreak doesn't start here and end there. It's the sum of all these environmental, social, political changes that have been going on for a long time and don't cease when we leave. In fact, the area might be poorer and even more like disrupted when we do go and therefore more prone to worse health outcomes I'm um, sorry, like you can see him like <laughs> please
0: please please like go ahead this is really interesting yeah, it's
1: like the conflict of someone who's done being the person who parachutes in and then with hindsight is like this was a terrible idea oh, okay um I still do it though, but I'm <laughs> like still trying to advocate for something better yeah. at the same time
0: so um yeah, I know at the moment you work for the center uh, for the study of existential risk, so um like um how does it kind of like uh, connect with the whole like a uh, global health or maybe one health scenario and and like you mentioned the other day that so uh like in one of the podcasts they called you like a uh, Australian pessimistic Australian <laughs> scientist right so yeah please give us all the grim details and the 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 world ending events that you know like that might happen and yeah that that would really be interesting
1: so i guess if we were going to link sort of existential risk to one health I would say that it kind of taps into my concerns that what One Health is trying to do, or at least what it's delivering at present, is way, way downstream. It's, yeah, it's a band-aid on a much bigger, still ongoing flesh wound that we're inflicting on ourselves and the planet we depend upon. So essentially, I mean, what we're witnessing right now is you know, complete ecological collapse of the country, of the country, of the planet we depend upon for our lives and, like, all of our children and our children's children will depend upon. And rather than sort of address that, which is really the Upstein driver of so much of the disease emergence we're seeing at present, and is only going to get worse with sort of, you know, climate change and, like, this ongoing sort of extraction and exploitation of planet earth and especially the people that happen to be in the poorer parts of it um, there's not really that much we can do in the long term with this approach alone what we really need to do is start to like reflect upon and critique what's happening upstream and what we'll see when we do that is this big sort of neoliberal capitalist world order that's really built off the kind of, you know, the skeleton of colonial rule Mm -hmm. where you just sort of extract, extract, exploit, exploit for a specific nation-state's gains whilst kind of ignoring the sort of, you know, the really directed and systemic costs to us all. So if I give an example, uh, so I mentioned earlier Doreen Brahm and just the brilliant work she's done on zoonoses and displacement. Mm -hmm. So she looked at a, a, a lot of different sort of settings and groups actually Oh, actually, no, I'll use one of my own examples. Sorry. Um, in, I think it was 2017, I, again, as a field epidemiologist, I went to um, the Somali region in the Horn of Africa, mm-hmm. and I was there to help. Well, at least they told me the reason I was going there was to help with this big cholera outbreak in the internally displaced people's camps, so the IDP camps, which the Somalis had had to move into. Essentially what had happened was there'd been a terrible terrible drought and on the back of the drought there was a huge famine and these Somali nomads had had to go into this sort of uh, this sort of like uh, part of Ethiopia um the Somali region and just join host communities in these like camps with very little infrastructure and because when you get lots of people especially malnourished ones without any kind of water sanitation infrastructure you just get huge outbreaks of cholera and such and so my job was to go and try and contain the cholera and keep a bit track on sort of the feeding programs. And so right now I got a couple of weeks ago I got a request to go out there again because there was yet another massive famine on the back of a huge drought. And they were having outbreaks again, the same like array of Hepatitis A, Hep E, eventually it be Dengue 2, Cholera and all the rest of these things. And I can keep slapping band-aids on that, I can work with the local vets to try and make sure that people's camels don't die so they have livelihoods afterwards, I can do all this work. It's not going to stop the climate change that's getting worse and worse, it'll make those droughts worse and worse, it'll make those famines worse and worse, it'll make it more and more politically unstable as these populations have to shift for resources into new countries. And so, I mean, sorry, this is such a grim note to to do on, but like, I feel like we've been distracted with this downstream reactive work. And we've for some reason let the biggest drivers of like the ill health in animals and humans you handle and I handle go without sort of being named and shamed and addressed. So I think we really need a new world order. We need something slightly more than one health. Or maybe the first step is to expand one health to also critique, critique these sort of larger global economies and what they're costing us to envision a safer better future, healthier future. Mm. Sorry, that's a mm. really <clears throat> dark note to end on though.
0: No, 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 it's it's no, it's like um I mean, when we know what the bigger issue is, then 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 we'll know what we're facing and what we should do, right? I mean, that's that's that's
1: I just worry that we, we do know already. We know about deforestation. We know about this sort of gaming theory different countries have got into and trying to race to the cheapest products. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know about the sort of global inequality we're happy to foster. And we know what's causing climate change, which is maybe, despite being someone that works on infectious diseases, I would say climate change is the most obvious, the biggest and the most pressing existential threat to us. And it's not that we don't know the drivers and we don't know how to stop it. It's that at the moment there's not the political will, to well yeah there's not the political will to do what we need to do. Yeah.
0: No. Also, will there ever be? Because the how the things are progressing, right? I mean, like like you said, it's like so for the benefit of a few uh, nations. So the new neoliberal like a uh, capitalistic approach of just like excavating and just trying to like like hoard the resources and then just a lot of industries. So, um. So what seems to be not working? I mean, so like you said, like the, uh, climate change is obvious, right? And what we're doing is causing that, and it's it's creating a lot of different problems, including outbreaks of like like a, you know like a emerging and new, uh, re-emerging diseases, and uh, like you mentioned, droughts and famine and all that. But but why aren't like uh, the people who are responsible they're addressing all this? I mean,
1: I so it's. It seems to be that we have we have mistaken the interests of businesses for a governance system, and I think that maybe that does like maybe find its roots in colonialism, this idea that like global coordination and sort of global governance looks like a system where you just you know you you take and you take without like much consideration for what's coming i just we i don't know a little bit of me just thinks. Okay so I mean this is sorry I'm no longer speaking as an anthropologist or epidemiologist this is just Freya talking off okay. the top of her head and what I think it is is the old bastions of power because it, at least in the UK and Australia and such what we've had is the people who are allowed to make policy like the the political class the elite they are these almost sociopathic wealth hoarding mm-hmm. individuals of a very particular sort of class niche and not the not I don't know whatever their philosophical bent is it's totally inappropriate for you know um for like doing what needs to be done for future generations um but they've built such an incredible infrastructure of sort of wealth and power that it's actually very hard to sort of challenge it and take it down and so I don't know, I guess it feels really unfair to do it. But I guess the hope is that a more woke generation coming forward um, might be sort of disillusioned with this system and maybe bring something new. I, I don't know. I was shocked at how much we let slide with COVID, which was a demonstrably sort of manageable mm-hmm. virus. And yet still, even though the political will didn't hold out long enough like to, you know, try and suppress it even for a couple of months. Ah, yeah, yeah sorry <laughs>
0: no, I mean, Yep. Yeah, the grim reality is there but we need to do something and before it it gets too late i mean yeah
1: ah, yeah but. you were telling me uh no you weren't telling me um the sorry um your friend and cambridge colleague who was looking at uh, kumar yeah kumar yeah. was telling me about how you see it in nepal already like The end of apples in some areas because of shifting sort of climate ranges and such. I mean, that's a very sort of poetic, you know, death of a canary as to ecological, like the ecological changes and what it might mean. And if we look in Pakistan and the droughts or the heat wave in India over the last couple of weeks, it's getting very late in the day. Mm. We really need to...
0: Yeah no it's it's affecting everywhere i mean so there was a like a, a paper that we came like uh, i i also co-authored mm-hmm. so it was maybe 2015 16 like a japanese encephalitis so during so usually what we used to see was so there's three ecological regions right so the himalayan the hilly and the tarai plains so uh, j uh, used to yeah? So so J used to be like a, the more patients used to uh, like used to be identified from the thorae region. So because the mosquitoes are the vectors, and that's where a lot of cases used to come. But in the like later years, so a lot of cases from the hilly, the cold region, like more even more than the thorae were like uh, were coming through. So so what happened was the mosquito, so usually the mosquito kind of migrated because it's getting more warmer. And more habitable for them, so now because the mosquito has migrated to like hilly region and then, um, yeah, with the, uh, the and and that's how like uh, the more JE patients are coming from. So we can see just one random example, right, on top of my head. But we can see the uh, the, the the impacts of uh, climate change, like uh, in globally, right. But still, I mean. Still, there's uh, it's 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 like you said. There's this old bastion of power, and those people don't want to change the status quo, right? So it's it's always uh, it's it's a hard thing. But hopefully, things yeah. will change. Like
1: I mean, the people that are making this policy and are kind of obscuring the problem and all the rest—they're this sort of group that will feel it least and latest. Oh, true. And true. so they're very insulated relative to the rest of the world. And I say that speaking as an Australian as well, like our country is not faring well already. Um, but yeah, we yeah, we need to understand that part of veterinary health and uh, human health and sort of environmental health is really, you know, addressing these larger drivers, like the larger political economy, and then even slightly downstream, the fact that we need to move towards renewable fuels. and.
0: Yeah. Also, could it also be that... Um, so it's not going to like the, the 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 thought that okay it's not going to happen in our generation right so we're not going to get affected oh, it's
1: already happening
0: so i mean, i mean like like you said the least impact like i mean for the people who are making those decisions right but down down the line no one is going to be safe right
1: no 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 yeah so, th- yeah it's amazing that they don't consider their children's yeah, exactly. children Yeah, said
0: that's what i'm that's what i'm coming from like uh, like you might not feel it, but your children, your grandchildren will definitely feel it. Yeah. And there's just one home, right? I mean, there's no other earth like we can go to. So, yeah, that's... Uh, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. it's It's hard.
1: In Australia, we now say... Uh, we, everyone says, uh, yes, it's the hottest summer on record, but it's the coolest one you'll know. For the rest of your life. Oh, oh. Which I think he sort of brings it home. But anyway, see, this is why I was like, oh, yeah. No, I, no, I no. warned this,
0: you. That, that. No, no, but this is important because I'm learning a lot and people need to understand, you know, like just kind of making a link from the disease aspect to the glo- like climate change. Yet
1: this is why we need the, the planetary health bit of One Health to really be a lot stronger.
0: No? No, 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 I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, because, see, like a lot of people aren't aware of what's happening and when we're showing the true reality, no matter how grim it is, that will make them like get their attention and, you know, like there could, something could happen, right? The, some some activities, right? So I I think, yeah, we're not lying about anything. We're just saying what, like, what is, how things are. So no, I think that this, this was important and this was really interesting. I
1: hope so. It'd be really nice to see the sort of One Health movement begin to sort of direct, because, I mean, uh, vets and doctors do tend to be like, have like quite significant social mm-hmm. standing be really nice to see the movement push more to accountability um like not just within countries but also for these wealthier countries that are really churning out most of the <laughs> risk like at incredibly disproportionate rate
0: oh yeah true, true
1: yeah and rather than like sustaining the status quo by staying you know good and quiet and yeah in our downstream niches
0: yeah no true and also like the 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 idea about global okay sorry uh, the climate change and this is this is mostly the people who are working in sciences and the related fields who are kind of advocating and who are like like raising their voices against right because a lot of public they're still unaware about what's happening and i think like like when they know like how how things might turn up in the later years i think then a significant number of like will kind of you know like um like opposed to what's happening and maybe demand I for a so. better kind of uh, um, uh, governance
1: yeah we have to remember like it's really really grim but actually there's still stuff we can do that yeah. will mitigate it so there is hope but we need to we need to get in there soon
0: yeah yeah okay, and and yeah, just so like just uh, shifting the topic from like really dark and like uncertain future to more a bit lighter uh, thing. So um so uh, yeah, so you've been here for a month and we've been visiting the sites, the Bungmati area for dog bites. So uh, yeah, so like like uh, how's your experience? I mean, uh, um, going out in the field, interacting with the public, and. Uh, so yeah there was this danger dog right who was biting like uh, everyone like some even claimed like 40 50 people the the mm-hmm. the, the devil bit so yeah just like uh, yeah like so I'm I'm just gonna ask you this this kind of the rabies related research related question experience and later like general like your experience in Nepal but yeah just
1: yeah oh okay so yeah um yeah doing field work with you was uh, really enlightening um, I think the thing that struck me was just because I, I don't work on rabies myself, but I do work on sort of treatment-seeking behaviors and surveillance systems and such more broadly. Um, was just the complexity of the issue, like when you're trying to understand how people seek treatment for a dog bite, and so potentially for rabies, uh, there was just so many considerations from like, like uh, whether the dog was a stray or a pet dog, like uh, the this standing within the family and whether they had access to money for transport or not to all of these things to just I guess the thing that really caught me by surprise is again because I come from sort of Australia and so our relations with dogs Mm. are very particular was just I don't I don't know if this is like something to do with sort of Hindu influences or something like that was just how incredibly tolerant (coughs) people were of like (laughs) A bitey dog, like a dog that's bitten thirty people, they just sort of like, ah, it's a bitey dog, and just let it sit around. Um, whereas, yeah, I think in Australia we would have like, you know, belt out some like quite harsh intervention by that point. So that was surprising, but I'm I also appreciate the kind of sentiments that feed into that.
0: Yeah, no, no. There's definitely kind of like a r- religious kind of uh, perception. So, yeah, like I told you earlier, right, there's, like, in Nepal, like people do worship dogs. So there's a, there's a festival during the... There's there's a day during the festival Diwali where we kind of celebrate dogs and that's another thing. So th- that's there. And also there's this another thing where, like, the Bhairav, the, like, uh, the god I showed you the yeah, other yeah. day. So, yeah, so the dogs are also connected with, uh, like, uh, with, with that, like, uh, with the god. And so that's why we have kind of a good connections with the animals. And also, like, I think so um so those kind, for those kinds of dogs there there isn't any governmental institutions where you can um call up and just complain and they will take care of it so if they need to take care of it they would have to do it themselves which do which does happen like during if it's a uh, like mad dog right What's yeah, pe- yeah. people Yeah that
1: seemed to be the exception Yeah. a mad dog yeah
0: if, because they know like if if dog is mad then the the dog starts biting a lot of people and the people start like people st- start getting, like, those neurological symptoms. So that's why they have to kill it themselves. So so it's it's really tough, right? So the culture is tolerant, but also, like, if they want to do something, so then uh, there aren't, like, uh, government institutions or infrastructures or services in place that will take care of that, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that and uh, yeah, it was quite interesting, right? Like, uh, we started uh, thinking that, okay, maybe we'll get some bite cases, then... Every third person we talked to was got bitten like within three, four months. And
1: I think the ridiculous one was when we just like cold, cold someone. We like stopped at a cafe and was like, Oh, has anyone here been bitten <laughs> by a dog, like expecting it to be within the last three months? And they're like, Oh, you mean that guy three hours ago by that dog just there? Yeah, I was, like,
0: like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The While we were doing the bite case, so, like interviews, like the study, people were getting. Bitten in real time, just like some just like, around the corner, cor- yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, that was really strange and and no, I, I really it was it was a good experience. I mean, you, you coming here and we're doing that right. And and what about Nepal? How how do you feel about Nepal?
1: I love Nepal. If I could just sort of set up base here, oh. I think I would never go back to the UK. No, You're too you're too nice. No, no you're too it's nice. wonderful. I, I mean, your elephants no oh, sketchy. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just just by the
0: way, so she. She went to Chitwan for a safari and she met Durbe Hattie, Durbe Elephant. <laughs> and yeah, and, 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 and I told her like, that's a really famous, dangerous elephant. Yeah, I mean, I was like, you're very tolerant
1: of a dog that's like bitten like 30 to 60 people. But an elephant that's killed like 18, I was like, that's impressive. That's a, that's a very, you know, extreme intolerance
0: yeah but but yeah but i'm I'm glad you enjoyed Nepal oh, and yeah. and the food right like
1: oh food's amazing yeah so
0: i I, I took her to all the local real local newari eateries and we ate a lot and yeah it, it was and it I was put,
1: like the architecture and just the mm-hmm. people and i like I realized that it's like old hat view, but like all the like temples and just the living sort of engagement with i don't know,
0: yeah no it's it's nice, it's Nepal nice. is nice and I'm really sorry for the half baked information about the statues and <laughs> temples and and my random like uh, ideas
1: yeah i have a very very questionable <laughs> grasp now on sort of um Nepal's culture and history courtesy of you but it's okay it's a very sort of personalized guess yeah well
0: <laughs> well at least yeah well, at least I said something, right? No, 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 it's true. And then
1: I relate it to other people. So like eventually maybe people will think that is the case.
0: I hope, hope that thing goes on and on and people just like, there's a big kind of chunk of like people thinking that's what's happening. And that goes into mainstream knowledge. So I created that misinformation. So oh, man. Anyway. They
1: couldn't assure a vet, not a talker. Right?
0: <laughs> oh, well. So, yeah, so, Freya, thank you so much for, like, doing this and agreeing for the the podcast. And I couldn't be more grateful for you being here and just, like, the hands-on approach. And, and, uh, like, I'm, I'm, yeah, forever being here, Dad. And thank you so much. You're you're, you're the super, like, really amazing, amazing, amazing supervisor.
1: No, like, see, now we have this on record, but, like, two years from now, when you've had to write your dissertation, you'll just be hating on me and all my, like, notes. Oh,
0: well, (laughs) well yeah oh no yeah it's
1: nice that we have this time though. oh and you're,
0: you're gonna like uh refer to this video right rakesh see what in, 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 at, at like one hour like two minutes what you just said remember yeah
1: yeah it's coming okay no, no it's my pleasure yeah okay
0: so yeah so see you again thank you everyone Bye. bye <laughs>